0: I'm U.S. Senator Debbie
6: Stabenow, and I'm listening to the
1: Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Friday edition of the show on Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store on Fridays, as uh, most regular listeners know. We try to squeeze in some music or something from the world of entertainment, and uh, today is no exception. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're uh, going to talk with... Um, a young rising star Olga Pizza who is um, appearing in a new Netflix coming-of-age film called Mixtape which is scheduled for release in December and uh, Olga plays kind of a tough kid we'll see if she's uh, if she intimidates me coming up uh, a little later in the show in the middle we're going to talk about uh, a, a real interesting biography with the subject of the biography it's called uh, a summer classic the Bue white story and Bew will be joining me uh... during the second hour but we start out this morning talking about uh... The Threat from China, and everybody has a different version of what that is, including my guest this hour. But I suspect he's probably a little more informed than most of us. He's a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. He has a new book. It's called Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict from the Yale University Press. came out in uh, September and he joins me now by phone, Albridge Colby. Bridge, welcome to the show.
5: Great, thanks to be, thanks uh, for the invitation. Delighted to be here.
1: Um, you know, I mentioned. I, I think most Americans feel a threat from China, but they believe it to be about economics and or technology. You suggest that there's something that. America is not paying attention to in a geopolitical sense.
5: What do you well, think well, thank, the threat is? Yeah, well, thanks, Tom. No, I it's, it's I think you raise a, a really interesting point, uh, the first one, which is that often I hear, actually particularly within the beltway, that, that the American people don't appreciate the, the challenge from China. And I think, you know, uh, your point there, I actually think is right, which is in some sense, I think the American people actually... In some sense, appreciate the um, the challenge from China more acutely than people in the so-called blob or within the Beltway, and par- in part because of the consequences of deindustrialization, sort of wrenching changes to our economy that that you know the the, the, the sort of unchallenged rise of China and its ability to exploit our openness has has led to. Um, whereas, in a sense, the, the Beltway has been sort of more insulated. So, I think you're right, but I also think you're you're right that people that that is a, a more of a sort of a, a na- naturally a kind of a, a an economic uh sort of immediate tactile feel it's not a, a military or a geopolitical one um although i will say that recent polling for instance from the chicago council and the reagan institute and others do appreciate i think the, the the challenge that china poses militarily um is, is growing but i think you're right and that's a big reason i wrote the book because i think look i mean not to be a flip but you know there's a infamous line of, of land trotsky's which is you know you may not be interested in the revolution but the revolution may may be interesting to you so i think that the american people understand the challenge from china it's mostly felt economically and actually that is what our interests primarily are it's in not having china dominate asia in a way that would ultimately really diminish our quality of life at home and, and our freedoms but i think that the, the, the part that, that people don't appreciate and, and, frankly, wouldn't have any reason to because it's, it's sort of, you know, distant, very distant from us is that it is a geopolitical uh, a challenge as well because in order for China to get to dominate Asia, the world's largest market area and essentially the center of, of global economic activity in the future, they're not going to only be able to uh, – they're not going to be able to achieve that goal only relying on economic and political and so-called soft power means. They're going to have to use military force, in my view, and have to have to unpack that. And I think we see them pursuing that goal. And the problem is, to put it very simply, is if we don't, if we're not prepared to fight over there, ultimately the contest is going to be decided over there. You know, people say, well, there's a big Pacific, can't we all live in it? Well, the problem is that, with the exception of the United States itself, all of the wealth and power around the Pacific Ocean is all clustered on the Western side. So if China gets into a position where it dominates the Western part of the Pacific, well, It doesn't matter if we have Samoa and Tuvalu and Vanuatu, right? These like tiny islands in the in the Pacific, it's going to be settled over there, and that's what China I think is preparing to do. And if we neglect it, they will pursue that goal, and we will, you know, one of two options, one of two things could happen. One is we could fail to arrest that, in which case our lives will suffer at home, or we will only get around to counteracting it when it's way too late, and and we will suffer a lot more. Uh, because of it, and we may actually fail, it's worth, it's worth pointing out that, you know, we waited uh, to deal with Japan in, in 1941, uh, and, and after a very bloody Pacific campaign, we were ultimately able to defeat the empire of Japan, but it's worth pointing out, the United States was ten times the size of the economy of Japan in 1941, and we were the, the industrial might of the world. China is an economy as large as we are, and they are the industrial capital of the world. Now, they, for instance, have the world's largest shipbuilding industry. We don't. So it's a much different world that we have to uh, uh, deal with now.
1: And, and it's interesting a lot of Americans um, well I think some people get a sense of what's going on in a geo geopolitical sense um, al- although a lot of it has been focused in the middle East and you you got to sneak in a fun line and here's one from uh Actor uh, Bill Dana, he was playing his character Jose Amenas, pretending to be the director of the CIA. He was taking questions from the audience, and someone asked him what the biggest secret of World War II was, and he said that it's still going on. (laughs) And you know, it was it was kind of a funny line. But to what degree is there a never-ending geopolitical chess game going on globally?
5: Well, that's a great point, Tom. I mean, I and I think it's something that it isn't so much in our DNA uh, in terms of our political discussion, which is there's a great line, and and people often attribute it to Churchill because they don't know who originally said it. I find that often people attri- attribute things to Winston Churchill when they don't know or, or they bo- want to make or it Bobby, more, more important. Or Bobby Kennedy. Or Bobby Kennedy <laughs> exactly, okay. That's a good one. But, but you know, that su- success is never final. And actually, you know, here I would say, you know international politics and domestic politics, minus the, the, the violence, uh, hopefully, obviously, isn't so much different than, than domestic politics, where, you know, every time, you know, you say, well, we've got a lasting coalition of Republicans or Democrats. Well, that, that, that everlasting coalition only lasts a few years, you know. Right. Um, there's always, because it's a balance of power, actually, and in some sense, you know, I, I think it's quite analogous to our system where there's a separation of powers, and you say, well, you know, if somebody gets to be the dominant power, they're going to create, you know they're they're going to ignore certain parts of the country, and those people are eventually going to be pulled over the other side because they want to change. It's similar in 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 international politics. You know, Russia was the big challenger to the United States, and they've declined, but now China's rising. And so it's sort of a natural thing. Um I don't, I don't want to make light of it, but I, I think that's where things, uh, where things go. I mean, I think the line that, that that another kind of nice line that's attributed actually to Napoleon, he said, I think when he had already been exiled, he said, um, you know, when China rises, the world will shake. I mean, even 200 years ago, people could see the latent power and capacity and um, sort of potential of, of China. And China has now kind of cracked the code on modern economic development and these sorts of things. And it's, it's enormously powerful. I think of it as like the Jupiter in the solar system. You know, it'd be as if there are two Jupiters, us and the Chinese. But, you know, when you get something like that in your solar system you've got to deal with it. It, it 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 exerts an intense gravitational pull and I think what's important for Americans to understand is we're not going to like permanently and forever solve this problem like a lot of people said in the '90s it's something we've got to manage but but in order to manage it in a way that's consistent with our interests and our you know that of our uh, the people whose interests align with our, ours we're going to have to take Steps now, and there's steps that are going to seem sharp, but that's to avoid a worse outcome uh, if we neglect them.
1: Well, and and that's one of the uh, one of the points that you make in the book is that preparing for war is often the best way to avoid it.
5: Yeah, and I mean, look, it's it's kind of a, I mean, it's kind of a, a it's a cliche, but there's a reason these things become cliches. I mean, it's sort of like. I don't. I mean, not to get into the domestic side, but I mean, like you know, if you neglect policing, you're likely to get higher crime. Whereas if you kind of take measured steps and make sure your police are, you know, obviously acting responsibly and and justly and so forth, but also effectively, you're more likely to have a a, a kind of a stable, reasonably safe situation. Or actually, I think um, the Federal Reserve is another good example. I mean, right now we're dealing with inflation. I don't pretend to know what the right monetary policy is, but you know, often it's a matter of let's take a step now to head off the future of, you know, inflation, for instance, because if we don't take, take action now, you know, we're going to I mean, the, the analogy I like in that respect is, you know, people say sometimes, oh, bridge, you know, you're exaggerating there. major powers would never get in a, in, a, in a war Two two big states with nuclear weapons would never get in a big war. And my point to them is, well, you know, before 2008, people said that there would never be another depression. You know, there hadn't been a depression since the 1930s. And we had, quote unquote, solved it. And what that led to was it led to behavior that actually raised the risk of a, of a financial crisis. And because we didn't, we didn't fear it enough, it, it made it more likely and, and ultimately happened. And th- one thing to remember is that during the Cold War, there never was a war between the Soviet Union and the United States. But the critical thing to remember is that people were thinking there very well might be all the time and were acting to prevent it actively. They weren't taking it for granted. And I think what we're doing now too much is we're taking for granted that there won't there couldn't be such a, such a war, and that's going to make it much more likely.
1: Well, and, and the other thing that people don't think about is great powers like Russia and China and the U.S. and, and others, uh, um, maybe not quite on the same scale. But they don't start wars. Wars were, you know, Wars are not planned generally. They get drawn into them.
5: I have a little bit of a different view. I, th- I think, I think you, I think you, you, make an important point. But I actually think if you look back, uh, certainly, of course, the Second World War, the war in Korea, uh, those were deliberately initiated by by uh, Germany and Europe and Japan and, in in Asia, and then and then the uh, the North Koreans with the connivance of, of Moscow and Beijing and Korea. And 1914, I think the you know, I mean, there's still a debate about that, but you know. Um, I think the Germans consciously said this is we're willing to run this risk and we're willing to get into it. So there, there is a there is a very real danger of kind of things spiraling. But usually if countries, gen, two countries generally don't want to get into war, they, they won't get into war. So, I mean, you know, we, uh, a Chinese plane knocked into one of our reconnaissance aircraft about 20 years ago off the Chinese coast, and it was a crisis. But we didn't get into war, I think, because both sides sort of didn't want it and a variety of other reasons. I think now what's more likely, what's more dangerous actually, is that it might make sense for the Chinese to actually precipitate a conflict. Um, and I, and uh, and I want to get be into their that. I want to yeah. get
1: into that a little bit. My guest is former sure. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Elbridge Colby. He is author of a new book, Strategy of Denial American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Um, Bridge, I have to take a short break here, but I really do want to talk about this some more and some of what you're recommending strategy-wise going forward. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Yes, yeah, great. All right, um, we're going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners uh, squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV, our Voices uh, Radio, ninety-two point one LPFM in Flint. And if uh, you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more right after this. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. ti double
7: That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program
6: on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
2: always you, you <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you
7: tune in monday
1: through friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at tom
3: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
1: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with the uh, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, Elbridge Colby, about his uh, book, Strategy of Denial. Bridge, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Happy to, Tom. Um, Bridge, I want to ask you about the title of the book, "Strategy of Denial," and what you mean by that. It, are, are you suggesting a course of action going forward? Are you referring to a a lack of strategy or misplaced strategy? What do you mean by that phrase, "strategy of denial"?
5: Sure, thanks, Tom. I mean, I think it's a two a twofold reference, and I, I should you know I should start actually. My 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 mom's family is all from Michigan, so I have a lot of roots in in Michigan, and I I think I, I mentioned that. Um, in part, because of what I'm trying to do is root our foreign policy more in a way that's, I think, connected to kind of, you know, the, the, the broad bulk of, of the people in the country's interests. I think there's been a tendency over the last generation to have these really kind of, you know, hubristic, almost messianic goals for our, you know, for our nation's interests in the world in ways that, that really just didn't make sense, I think, for, for normal Americans who, you know, have a job, a family, whatever, you know, kind of... Ordinary concerns, and you know, you get presidents talking about, you know, democratizing the whole world or making sure that there's peace all around the world, and all this kind of stuff. And, well, yeah, they, you, what they've I wanted, even used yeah.
1: the term being uh, being the world's policeman.
5: Exactly, and I mean, I just don't think that's the job of the American people. And I, one of the things that bothers me about the the blob, and I guess I'm, I'm you know, in some part, in in some way, a part of it, but I try to be, you know, I try to distinguish myself from from its bad aspects but i mean i think what i what i try to do is like all right you know how is this an american citizen's interest it's, uh, you know our enlightened self-interest for sure i mean not 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 looking to be to be kind of zero sum but like how does this help normal americans you know that and, and i just i think a lot of times we've lo- really lost the bubble as pilots say on that over the last generation so what i want to do is okay what's what are we really trying to do in the world? And that's particularly important because, as I said earlier, you know, China has risen. It's a superpower. It's a superpower of roughly equivalent power to our own. And that's really serious. And there's there's a chance of a war. There's a chance of really serious things happening. So we need to be really clear and tight about what it is we're trying to do in the world because the consequences could be extremely severe. It's not like 1999 when sort of what's the worst that could happen. And so what I... To get to your question, the, the, the denial thing is, is a two-level thing. The first is, what's our fundamental goal of our foreign policy? Well, I think the fundamental goal of our foreign policy is to protect our, of course, our security, but also our prosperity and our freedom. And in that sense, what we don't want to have happen, and again, I, analogizing out from our, that separation of powers idea, we don't want anybody in the international system who has the power and the ability and thus, the, and, and likely the will to intrude into our national life and diminish our prosperity and our freedom. And I think the only way that realistically could happen is that a superpower could take over one of the market areas, key market areas of the world. And the only plausible way that could happen in, in the foreseeable future is China, which is about a quarter, fifth to a quarter of global GDP or power establishing a dominant position in Asia, which is going to be upwards of 50% of global GDP going forward. Um, I can talk about the other threats but they're they're far far less acute if china established that position i think there's no question that it would intrude into our national life in a way that we already see it doing for instance in australia where the 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 chinese are waging kind of economic blockade or even economic warfare against australia to get them to change their own domestic legislation and of course we we look at how the chinese are behaving towards their own people in terms of you know big data and the panopticon social model that gives us a taste so we don't want to let them have that power and i think it's a very acute and realistic threat that is closer than people appreciate we want to deny that okay we want to deny that so that's the first meaning. the second meaning is it's critical to build up a coalition to stop china from dominating asia because we're not strong or resolute enough to do it on our own okay that's japan india australia et etc we can sort of see this happening the problem is that china has a way to try to break that apart you know china's interest if it wants to become that dominant power which i think it does and it's not crazy for them to want that uh then it's got to collapse that coalition and and it it, it, you know it probably doesn't want to do that by doing like hitler and declaring war on everybody and essentially kind of committing strategic suicide instead what it wants to do is zap a few members of that anti-hegemonic coalition enough to cause a run on the bank and basically say for people to say you know the only way that if you're if you're south korea or the philippines or taiwan or even japan the only way that you're going to have that think that it's prudent to stand up to China is if the United States is the other superpower in the world that's gonna stand by you because if you're on your own you're toast forget it if the Chinese put you under this microscope you're fried and then you're gonna cut a deal knowing that that's the future so the critical steel in the spine of that anti-hegemonic coalition is the confidence in America and I again I don't say that as sort of saying America has to be a global leader or whatever no I don't I mean look we had a great country for 150 it had flaws we had a great country for 150 years When we were basically isolationist so we don't need to do this but i don't see an alternative you know if if we don't do it we will get that future where china dominates asia and from that position is kind of globally dominant preeminent the second meaning of denial then tom is that we need to be able to defend other sort of allies in that anti-hegemonic coalition from china's microscope strategy that laser focus that zapping strategy sufficient to keep them holding on. And that's actually a relatively low standard politically. Think Britain in the 1940s. But it's very demanding in practice because the Chinese are so powerful and so strong. But that's the second. And that military part is critical because I don't think China's going to be able to get to a regionally dominant position without using military force. Now that's good news in the sense that, say, the Australians right now are standing up to China and and bully on them. You know, they really deserve our admiration. But at the same time, that's going to increase the allure of the military instrument to Beijing, and they've developed the military to to use it in this way. And so that's what I want to focus on. And my my argument here is that, well, a little bit, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty little bit of prevention right now, you know, taking some vitamin D or what have you, or vitamin C (laughs) will avoid getting the bad outcome, uh, is much better than than penny-wise, pound-foolish later. And I actually, I'd love not to increase the defense budget. I'm not actually calling for increasing the defense budget per se. I'd love to be able to, shift resources within the defense budget to focus on what I'm talking about, China and Asia. But if we can't do that for whatever reason, politics, bureaucratics, blah, 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 then we need to spend more.
1: A, a lot of people have thought that um, America's presence in the Middle East, regardless of rhetoric about terrorism and peop- and countries that support terrorism, I think a lot of people think that underneath all of that, it was about trying to maintain some sort of control over oil. And when you mentioned earlier, Bridge, about China picking a market, um, is, is oil no longer the best bet?
5: Yeah, well... I mean, part of me kind of wishes that there was as much sort of ruthless clarity to our strategy in the Middle East as you're suggesting. I actually think it was more delusional. And, I mean... Um, but but, you know, I, but and,
1: I've talked to people, you know, just regular Americans who think, oh, we're really over there
5: about the oil. Well, look at the response to, like, what when President Trump said that uh, about the oil market. I, I just... I, I, I don't think... I mean, I don't think that's accurate. I actually think that our goals were much more grandiose and hubristic. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, President Bush in his conception, uh, I don't think he was cynical. I think he was just profoundly mistaken and in a sense, delusional. Uh, I mean, in the sense that he wanted to, he believed that like the French revolutionaries in a sense, he believed that we could not be free at home if people were not free in the Middle East. And I think that's, I think that's a mistake. And I think we paid the consequences for it both directly in the lives and, and, you know, I mean, the limbs of a lot of Americans, but also we are at this impasse because of those decisions, um, which, which makes me quite angry, actually, because this is China and Asia is something that really, really matters. And people now say, you know, the Middle East, well, why should we be prepared to do this? And I think it's a very valid and human uh, and, and, and justifiable sentiment. But the problem is it, it, the facts are there, you know, and, um, you know, I think oil... Look, I think the Persian Gulf in particular, the oil producing regions are important. They're, they're much less important than than the market area of Asia. I mean, you know, wealth comes from, you know, economic productivity at the end of the day. Um, oil is valuable. But but also the oil the oil uh, of the Middle East, I mean, we are largely, I mean, especially if we, no. I mean, we, we are at least latently energy self-sufficient. So it's not of direct importance to us so much as it is to many of our allies and so forth. So, you know, I don't think... I don't think the, I mean I just don't think the Middle East is that important and to the extent that it is important it's, it's largely just about the the, the Gulf monarchies where the oil production is, is concentrated but I basically think we should just be dramatically reducing our, our military exposure in, in the Middle East but also our uh, political degree of political capital there and really focusing much more on the low cost counterterrorism posture uh, helping Israel secure itself and then backing up uh, the countries that want to take the lead in you know, pushing back on Iranian uh, ambitions in the region. but Otherwise, we should be keeping a, a low profile.
1: Well, let me ask this, because a lot of people think that, that warfare is transitioning from, um, well, it's transitioning, it's more likely to be hack than attack. And and I'm wondering how much that's really true, and if there is an important role for the military, and how and where should
5: they be deployed? Yeah, I think that that view is wrong. Uh, let me be let me be very clear about that. There's sort of a faddish view out there that you know people will use kind of cyber, you know, and shut off your phone. But look, at the end of the day what, you know, Thucydides wrote about this as a Greek historian writing writing almost 2,500 years ago or Thomas Hobbes or, or frankly, Mao Zedong, which is the, you know, power ultimately comes out of the ability to to kill other people. I mean, it's a a really nasty thing, but it's true at the end of the day. And, you know, people are physical beings, right? I mean, we are embodied. And um, lethal force is the most coercive thing. And if you want to project lethal force, you do it by moving things through space. So, you know, and at the end of the day, the American people, you know, are not going to give up their freedoms because our phones get turned off by a Chinese cyber attack. What's going to, you know, the, the way the Chinese are going to convince, say, the people on Taiwan to give up is by invading the island and putting a gun to their head. Um, that's, that's the way it's really going to work. And that is kind of old fashioned. Uh, and here's the other thing. I mean, The Chinese seem to believe that this kind of old-fashioned attitude is correct because they're building a military that's not just a bunch of, like, you know, cyber messaging and hacking your phone or whatever. They're building a military with aircraft carriers, submarines, bombers, fighters, Marines, you know, missiles. So, (laughs) you know, I don't know if that's old-fashioned. It seems kind of new-fashioned to me, but I think that's it. And I think to your question then, Tom, about the posture, I think our posture has got to be in Asia. You know, I think with the amount of money the American people are willing to spend on defense, which is, relatively speaking, quite a lot compared to almost everybody else, uh, we don't have enough to spread the butter around. we got to really focus it on Asia, where we face a superpower uh, in, in the world's most critical theater. So we basically pretty much need to stop what we're doing everywhere else, um, you know, other than sustaining our nuclear deterrent and this kind of low-cost kind of counterterrorism approach, um, but really, really, we've got to overwhelmingly be focused on Asia. How does Korea fa- factor into that? So Korea is a distinct, North Korea is a distinctly tertiary threat. Now, it poses a very serious threat because it could uh, launch nuclear weapons, potentially even at the United States itself. So one of the things, if, if it's affordable, I think we should try to maintain a missile shield against North Korea. Now, that may not be plausible. I mean, contrary to what a lot of people say, our missile defenses are, are, are not very effective. Um, but, of course, North Korea has limits on what it can do. Our, our missile defense would not help much at all against China or Russia. But, you know, that's a nice insurance policy. At the end of the day, though, look, I think North Korea might be a free radical in, in, the, in the system. It, it's worth thinking about, and people often don't, don't appreciate this, but during the Cold War, there was what was called the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, you know, China actually became kind of a U.S. ally Uh, during the latter part of the Cold War against the Soviet Union, actually the the Chinese and the Russian Soviets fought a a border war, a limited border war, uh, you know, I think the late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, North Korea in that context was aligned with Moscow because North Korea feared China, actually. So North Korea, I don't think, wants to be under China's boot. And so I think, you know, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to get the South Koreans to essentially focus on their defense against North Korea, against like a... A, a non-nuclear assault and then we'll help them at the high level um and and but but i think we should also be looking for opportunities to create distance between north korea and china in, in the same way that i think we're going to need to look to create distance between russia and china uh, it doesn't mean we we give give away the store to russia or north korea a because it probably not be a good idea but b because it probably won't work but i do think there's there, there could be opportunities just as you know president nixon was able to break china or you know in a sense, see that the Chinese wanted wanted a different relationship and take advantage of that.
1: When um, when you talk about the uh, the Soviets and and the Cold War and China becoming oh uh, to some degree an ally of the United States in that Cold War um, at at the risk of sounding like I'm. Uh, Uh, at the risk of making George Orwell a prophet in 1984, (laughs) um, what is the possibility that Russia would support the U.S. in a stronger stance against China? I think it's a very real prospect. Um, And and are we playing that chess game that George Orwell described in 1984 with the three big powers that
5: changed yeah. you know, allegiances? Well, look, I don't, I don't think we're playing the game very well from what I can tell. That said, I don't think there's an easy solution. Now, I think we should be clear about what the basics are. The, the Russian leadership really dislikes and distrusts us, and of course, we feel very similarly. Um, but at the end of the day, to get back to where my starting point, I'm thinking about what's in the American people's interests. I'm not thinking about what happened in the past so much. I'm not thinking about, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not really thinking about what's going on in Russia. That's, that's, that's a tertiary concern to me. I'm thinking about the American people's interests. Um, I mean, I care about it as a human. I care about it as an individual, but the job of American foreign policy is to serve Americans enlightened self-interest. And I think Russia, if China continues its rise, Russia has to be scared of that because Russia immediately borders China, of course. And they, they also have, you know, China is increasingly putting its weight into areas that the Russians regard as their kind of backyard, like central Asia, Kazakhstan, these other places that you know sound very obscure to us, but, but we're actually part of the Soviet union and that the Chinese are now kind of sort of trying to economically colonize through their belt and road initiative, etc. So I think that, I think the Russians are aware of this, but they hate us and they, they have amb- ambitions in the West. So I think what what we need to do is sort of hold the line in the West because we don't want to give the Russians the impression that they will benefit from from pushing us in the West. But we also don't want to push them for you know into a corner, but rather, we kind of and then kind of get out of the way of their of their seeing the threat in the West because what really will matter is not that they love us. It wasn't that Mao Zedong and Richard Nixon liked each other. It was that Mao Zedong saw more of a threat from you know Leonid Brezhnev than he did from Richard Nixon uh, in the United States. And so, that's what we want to see. And I mean, similarly, I mean, you know, uh, the American people are, you know, lastingly anti communist, but in 1941, we decided, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Which is, you know, the loathsome government of Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union. I you mean, know, one of the, I don't know, one, literally competing for the worst government in human history with Hitler and Mao and so forth. Mao, who was also an ally later. So this is this is kind of the the way I think we need to, we need to look at it. I don't think we should expect that we're going to become friends or we're going to have some big rapprochement, you know, like the French and the Germans did after world war II. No, what we need is kind of what the Chinese and we had in the seventies and eighties, which is we don't necessarily like each other that much, but we're going to work together towards a common set of interests. And I think that is plausible. And I think it could happen relatively quickly. Um, you know, if you look at, at some of these changes, especially if the Chinese were to do something offensive to the Russians, or their perception might change relatively quickly. So I think we should be prepared for that.
1: What's the role of, of Taiwan currently, and and what could it be going forward?
7: So
5: Taiwan is is very important. It's not existential for America, but no particular interest in Asia is existential for America, right? This is the, this is the challenge, but what Taiwan is very important for is It's, it's important for that, that whole anti-hegemonic coalition. I mean, think of that coalition as the only way we're going to stop China from dominating Asia. So we got to make this coalition work. And for this coalition to work, we have to have a good military position in the Western Pacific because that's where everything is. And we have to have people believe us. And we are tied to Taiwan's defense, whether we like it or not. They're not a formal treaty ally. But everybody in Asia looks at Taiwan as a kind of a canary in the coal mine for how we treat, say, the Philippines or South Korea in the future. And that's, I think, actually a reasonable assessment on the part of those people. Um, So what what, what Taiwan is, is Taiwan is worth defending up to a certain level of cost and risk for the American people. And we can drive down that level of cost and risk by having a better military strategy and a better military posture. And that's what I'm really focused on, is like, look, why aren't we focusing more and buying the systems and posturing our forces? that we can drive down that level of cost and risk so it becomes a good idea because the better our military the better suited our military is to defend that anti-hegemonic coalition the less costly it will be for us and the stronger the coalition will be but instead we're kind of like dilly-dallying around and sailing aircraft carriers in the Middle East and continuing to do a bunch of stuff in Europe and buying things that don't actually matter for this kind of thing which is ultimately going to get more Americans killed at the end of the day that's I think what's likely to happen if we continue on this course
1: well, Bridge, um, before we run out of time, I want to ask just very, very briefly, uh, I wanted to mention your co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative. What is that?
5: Yeah, so the Marathon Initiative is a small think tank, a, a nonprofit think tank, that's really focused on trying to grapple with the implications of great power competition, particularly the rise of China, but also you know Russia's still a major actor in the international system. I mean, our view at Marathon is that there are a lot of think tanks out there and with all due respect, to them, but they they tend to be status quo oriented. They tend to be kind of like big, sort of bulky institutions. They pr- produce a lot of shorter reports. So what we saw actually is a need for long, you know, this thing like my book here, uh, you know, which is a deep take on how we need to adapt our defense strategy, in particular, in light of this fundamentally new world. And you know, we'll take a lot of people on, you know, but the idea <laughs> of marathon was to say. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're doing your job right as a strategist, you should be ticking some people off. You know, I mean, if you're, in, if you're in a company, if you're in, you know, back in the day, or I mean, today, too, if you're at Ford Motor Company or General Motors or Chrysler or whatever, and you're saying, you know, and you're seeing, say, the Japanese auto companies come in back in the 60s and 70s, and you're not ticking people off in your organization, you're not doing it right, right? You have to be adapting to a fundamentally new situation. That's going to cause winners and losers, and... If the people who are trying to come up with the strategies for that are not doing that, then then they're failing at their job. And and so hopefully, you know, hopefully, you know, in, in terms of my book, I certainly don't claim to have the last word on every point I make. But what I do hope is that I've provided a kind of a, hopefully, a rigorous framework with which people can use to debate more productively and in a focused fashion about these issues and grapple with the real problems rather than a lot of our foreign policy establishment, which is, you know, just wants to kind of live in the past, and that's kind of lame, frankly. But I also think is not not living up to the responsibility of our foreign policy. You know, well, Bridge, uh, expert I, class,
1: Bridge. We we have to end it here, but I'm having a, a, a tremendous time talking with you, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with me and the listeners today. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out. More about you, the book, and your work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website?
5: I do. Thanks, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. And in fact, I have, I've, I've stuck all my writings and, and, and appearances and so forth on my, on my bio page, www.themarathoninitiative.org. Uh, and then you know, my, my, there's a bio page for me. And you know, so I'm an open book in terms of uh, my, my views. I'm not shy, as you can tell. But, but it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and, and to your listeners. Well,
1: Bridge, keep up the good work, and I hope we get a chance to talk again, because I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Me too, Tom. Thanks. Take care. Again, that was uh, Elbridge Colby. He uh, served in 2017 and 18 as the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. And uh, his book is uh, called Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. We're going to take a short break uh, and let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. We'll be back. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue
7: Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: While we've been staying safe at home,
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
4: Do you really think you can get away with this? Well, Pierre, I've uh, been criticized in the newspapers for the big parties and the uh, state dinners. Now we've got to cut down in economy starch at home. All
3: right, if you say so. Oh, here they are. Uh-huh.
4: All right, uh, gentlemen, uh, let us be seated. Uh, Mr. Adenauer, if uh, you will sit uh, next to your uh, friend, Mr. De Gaulle, And, uh, Mr. Castro, if you will sit here next to your friend, Mr. Khrushchev. Mr. Nasha, if you will sit here next to uh, Mr. Ben-Gurion. I'm, I'm... Uh, I'm, sh- I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Nkrumah, if you will sit in between Mr. Ben-Gurion and Mr. Nasha, then, uh, you can uh, turn either way. Now, uh, Mr. Uh, Shankai Shek, would you uh, please uh, sit there beside Mr. Khrushchev? Oh, good. Now, uh, before we get down to the business at hand, I think lunch would be in order. Now, I thought that instead of the uh, formal food we usually serve here, that we would have a uh, typical American uh, businessman's lunch. So, I'm going to send down to the delicatessen store for uh, some sandwiches. Well, how does that uh, how does that strike you, gentlemen? Uh, Ah, uh, Mr. Khrushchev, Mr. Khrushchev, would you, uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but would you mind uh, just taking your shoe off the table? <laughs> now, I think, uh, I'll have a, a peanut butter and jelly on whole wheat with a, a side order of coleslaw and a hot fudge uh, sundae. Uh, Mr. De Gaulle? yuck. <laughs> I
7: would like to have dove under glass.
4: Well, I'm, uh, sorry, General, but, uh, we're only having sandwiches today.
7: Then could I have a dove-on-the-glasses
4: sandwich? <laughs> All right, uh, Pierre, a, a chicken salad on white for the general. Uh, Mr. Uh, Sh- Shankai-Shek. Uh,
3: club sandwich would be fine. Thank you so much.
4: Would you like it with a, a little mayo?
3: Please, not to mention that name.
4: Uh, <laughs> right? I must, I'm sorry. Mr. Uh, Nasser. I'll have a hot pastrami sandwich. I can never get it at home. Okay. <laughs> What, uh, what kind of bread? White toast with lettuce and uh, mayonnaise. Uh, Mr. Nassau. What do you want, Ben-Gurion? Look, I, I know we don't get along. You never listened to me. Now you're fooling around with rockets. But this time, please listen. Pastrami don't go with white bread and lettuce and mayonnaise. <laughs> Have that on rye bread with mustard and a glass of tea you'll enjoy. <laughs> I think, that, uh, I think that Mr. Uh, Ben-Gurion has a point there. I'll... All right, I'll, I'll take a chance. Good boy. And if you like pastrami, next time you're in my neighborhood, drop into the house. My wife makes like a
6: filter fish. It melts in your mouth.
4: We'll have to get together, Mr. Ben-Gurion. My name is Ben-Gurion. You can call me Ben. My name is Abdul Nasser. You can call me Abe. <laughs> Good. Now, uh... Fine. Mr. Uh, Mr. Khrushchev. Oh, you don't have to order special for me. I'll have a bite of everybody else's. <laughs> All right, uh, Mr. Uh, Adenauer.
7: You have one sandwich here in America I love. I have a Western sandwich.
4: If Adenauer has a Western sandwich, then I'll have an Eastern sandwich. There is a no eastern sandwich, Then I want the eastern portion of his western sandwich. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a sure, I'm sure we can uh, negotiate on that subject, uh, Mr. Castro. No, pregunte qué su patria puede hacer para usted, pero pregunte qué usted puede hacer para su patria.
6: I have a chicken sandwich with a live chicken. <laughs>
4: Well, that leaves uh, Mr. Nkrumah. What will you have, sir? I'll have some watermelon. Don't put me on, Mr. Nkrumah. All right. All right. A ham and egg sandwich and a Coke. And and I guess a bowl of borscht. Okay. Okay, uh, Pierre, uh, put the rush on it. Well, we got it. Left in, well, Gentlemen, that was a uh, pleasant lunch. Now, uh, under discussion today will be in nuclear disarmament, followed by the UN bond issue and a uh, matter of the trade agreements. Now, first, there is a most important matter to settle. Uh, Mr. De Gaulle, yours was the chicken salad and coffee. That's a dollar forty. <laughs> <laughs>
7: From the Tom Sunder Show. Oh, yeah. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Come on! Come on, get out of here!